down your neighborhood, greeting your neighbors, saying hello, letting the sun hit you on the back of the neck. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Thursday. Vanessa, I think it's day 14. It's day 14, y'all. If you you done made it, I just want you to jump for joy. 14 days of walking. A couple more days, you got a life-saving habit on your hands, y'all. You got a life-saving habit on your hands. Talk about pushing, man. We pushing hope. (laughs) We pushing hope. Oh, Vanessa, how you doing? I'm doing so good. I literally just right now am walking in front of Girl Check's first office. Remember that basement office? Did they have no windows? It was next to the acupuncture. <laughs> you were so excited. You was like, we I got an office. We got, I went down there, y'all. It was like in the basement on the <laughs> side the of a garage. <laughs> you were so pumped, though, girl. You know how to make lemonade out of lemons. I'm going to tell you that. That's why people mess with you. That's why people mess with you because you know how to make lemonade out of lemons. And I'm so grateful for it. You guys, I feel so good being outside, Vanessa. I'm so grateful for your Thank friendship. You. Thank you for cheering me up this morning. Y'all, we have an important message today. Rally your kids to hear this story. Actually, don't let them listen to boot camp. You tell it in your own words. That's more powerful. And plus, we be acting. So let me tell you, I picked that song, Pussy Man, one, because I love Curtis Mayfield. Two, because that song got more flavor in the first beat than most of the songs this decade. That's all I got to say. <laughs> it's going to go boom, 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 boom. I'll be like, it got so much flavor. It got so much flavor. In fact, Tahira Davis and I, in, in the ninth grade, we had, we had an uh, economics class. We had to create like a um, product. And we had to make a commercial for the product. And we was like, okay, what product are we going to make? So then we had this great idea. So, you know, after you have like Fruity Pebbles or some kind of good cereal, the milk after when you be drinking yeah. it, it'd be delicious. Yeah. So we was like, we're going to have a product called Flavor Milk. And it's, instead of the Milk Man, it's going to be the Flavor Milk Man. And we was like, and his theme song going to be Pushing Man. <laughs> it's like, boom. We played the commercial. Girl, we got an A on that project. We was like, is that the Do you realize that's a multi-million dollar business? There's one like three blocks from me right this second. It's called Milk. And it's like, it's just flavored cereal milk that they have made into ice cream. And it's like all of the fancy places in Soho and this, yeah. So that was 1995. Go with your dreams, young women, because you could be millionaires. And ours was a flavor milk man. It might have been too ethnic for this demographic. (laughs) It was great. So ever since I played that song for that, I always just thought that this has so much flavor. And today's story, Vanessa, has so much flavor. It's so much flavor. So I wrote a story today for y'all. If you didn't read the email, it's okay, because I'll never be reading my email. And the story starts in 1969. 1969. I just want to recap for everybody Maybe if we can do like a quick recall, Vanessa, from people on the street, from us, just in your mind, in your soul. 
Uh-huh. In the late 1960s, what was happening in America? Is this a good question to remember? We talked a lot yeah. about the 1960s in this particular season of boot camp. Uh-huh. So you remember this is when Fannie Lou Hamer was starting her Freedom Farm. This is when James Brown inspired the youth and hip hop was about to be born. But before that, this is when Dr. King, who was born on Sweet Auburn, was murdered in the late 60s. This is when the crack epidemic and heroin, actually it was more heroin during this time, that we talked about that led to the L.A. riots. This is when all the redistricting and zoning was happening. What else? This is when the Black Panther Party was being attacked and systematically murdered by different police forces and our federal government as public enemy number one. This is when SNCC turned into black power and the youth. This is when rampant poverty and segregation was happening that we talked about yesterday in Chicago. I mean, like the 60s was it, y'all. And we learned that there was, a, in the Fannie Lou Hamer episode, we learned that there was a great recession that was happening at that time as well across the entire country. But there's one thing we haven't talked that much about that was happening in the 60s. We mentioned it with Dr. King, I think yesterday or the day before. In the 60s was also the Vietnam War. And uh-huh. the Vietnam War devastated Black communities. It devastated America. But it also devastated our economy in ways that we don't really talk about. And in fact, every single day, more money was spent funding the Vietnam War than all of the social programs in all of the cities of America put together. More money was spent each day bankrolling the Vietnam War than was spent on any social services in any city combined, right? And mm-hmm. so what we also know is that black men were disproportionately represented on the front lines of that war. And what we know is when they came back, they came back to unemployment. Many of them came back to heroin addiction, which came from the fields of Vietnam. And mm-hmm. that heroin addiction started to destroy our communities. The other kind of poison in our veins at this time was rage. Because not only had Malcolm been assassinated, John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy had been assassinated, and the final straw, Dr. King, had been assassinated in the 60s, and the streets erupted in violence, okay? So there was one particular city, and that city, we don't talk about a lot on Black History Camp, but we should. It is the city of Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania, Vanessa. Have you been to Pittsburgh? I have been to Pittsburgh. And on that Harriet Tubman Freedom Ride, I met up with a crew of Black girls and we're planning to ride our bikes from Pittsburgh to D.C. next June. So if there's any bike riders. Oh my God, that's so perfect. Yeah. Oh, hit Vanessa up at Vanessa Trex on her Instagram if you want to join her on that bike ride. That sounds fun. Don't be hitting Vanessa up if you ain't been on a bike in 27 years. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. This ain't the training one. This ain't the training one. Because I can't go. I don't even know how to ride a bike like that. Okay. So Pittsburgh, if you haven't been there, it's a gorgeous city. But in the 60s, Pittsburgh was a struggling post-industrial city where all of the industry had been shipped out in different places and like the workforce was all kind of unemployed. And did you know Pittsburgh was the place where August Wilson's plays were all set? 
I did know that because then, you know, he wrote a lot of those plays in Seattle. Oh, wow. About but yeah. growing up in Pittsburgh. About uh-huh. Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I did know it's that. It's fascinating. Yeah. So if you've ever seen any of the August Wilson plays, what are they? The, the piano, piano lesson the, is right now fences. on Broadway starring Samuel L. Jackson with his wife directing. I'm trying to go. Oh, Sunday, my God. Maybe, go see the it. Tickets. Oh, my God. <laughs> go go see go. It. Yeah. I feel like this is a sign that you brought this up. It I is a sign. Go. go. Yes. Oh, my God. Go, Vanessa. Please go. That's historic. And, oh, my God, I have such a funny story about Samuel Jackson's wife. I told you this. The history teacher who used to teach next to me at South Atlanta High School, she used to cuss the kids out every day. And she was a heavyset woman, and you could hear her breathing coming up the stairs, and she'd be going, Morgan, where are these kids going? I can't stand these little da 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 Anyway, she was best friends with Samuel Jackson, his wife. <laughs> so it was so perfect. So his wife directing makes me so, so happy. So, Vanessa, yeah. Pittsburgh was in the height of, like, urban blight, unemployment, crime, drug addiction, and one particular area that August Wilson just painted so beautifully, the history and the arc of this Black community was the Hill District. So these offenses uh-huh. with um, Viola Davis and Denzel Washington, this is where we're talking about, okay? The Hill District of Pennsylvania. Now, Vanessa, it, there yeah. was rampant, rampant unemployment, and there was hyper vigilant policing in the '60s, as you can imagine. Oh, look at that garbage van! Remember Rock? Uh, no, yeah. Oh my <laughs> God, that's so good. Yes. Yes. Well, that came from the August Wilson play. Remember, we went to go see Fences in L.A. Me and you. Yes, I do. do you remember that? And I, I think do. Rock was in that that one. But anyway, I after like, that, yeah. my friend Shay just told me this. After they did that August Wilson play, then they got the show Rock, which was about a garbage man. So uh, look at look at God working with some sounds. It's like NPR over here. We got some sound tracks and stuff. So um so this was all in Pittsburgh. Rock everything. All that I don't know if Rock was, but um August Wilson plays that vibe. Okay. So it over policing was the was um one of the major problems there. And there was a lot of animosity between the mostly all white police force of the 1960s in Pittsburgh and the all the mostly all black community of the Hill District in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So drug addiction, poverty, unemployment, over policing, it sounds very familiar. What is unfamiliar about this particular community is the level of activism and solution making that started happening, Vanessa. And I am so deeply inspired by the people there who led the way. Okay. So first of all, there was a group called Freedom House Enterprise. And Freedom House Enterprise lived in an organizing hub right there on Center Avenue. And on Center Avenue were these, all these different kind of protest groups. They were protesting everything from Vietnam to occupation in Africa to um, segregation integration. They were the people who were leading the social justice movement. So in the heart of that, a gentleman started kind of an enterprise company where he wanted to employ young black men in the community because unemployment was a real issue. So he started doing things, I'm assuming inspired by the black power movement, he started doing things like hiring black men to deliver groceries to people who couldn't get out of their houses, Vanessa. So he had a couple of vans, he hired some brothers 
to deliver medicine, to deliver groceries. They started transporting people to the hospital, like our elders. And they started like really just bringing hope to the community in this way that was small scale, but really well-intentioned and well-designed. At the same time, the medical community was grappling with an issue. There had been a white paper, Vanessa, that did deep and thorough research. There's all these tentacles are going to start to connect Vanessa. Deep and thorough research mm-hmm. about what happened in America between the time that there was an emergency in someone's home and mm-hmm. the transportation from their home to the hospital. And this particular white paper was groundbreaking because it said 50,000 Americans a year are dying in between their homes and the hospital. Well, you might take for granted that right now when you call 911, that you can say, my sister is having a heart attack, and that in just a few minutes, an ambulance would come. Before 1967, that was not the case. If you called 911, the police would come with a paddy wagon, or Vanessa, if it felt dire, the actual morgue would come in a hearse because they had a fleet of cars that could take bodies. So either the police would show up or the hearse would show up because the hearse Mm -hmm. also had a relationship with the hospitals, right? The coroner. Right. And so somebody could be having a heart attack and you call 911 and either the police who then were very racist and white would come to your community or a hearse would come to your community. Those were the two options because really it was about emergency transportation, right? It was emergency Uh transportation. It was not emergency care. Well, Vanessa, people did not call 911. I mean, like Flavor Flav said, 911 is a joke. In 1967, for sure, Pittsburgh, for sure, 911 was a joke. And in fact, because of the drug epidemic, people were criminalized for their sickness. So if somebody was having an overdose or somebody was even having any kind of like seizures or anything, they assumed they were a drug addict and they criminalized them, which happens often now, right? I think about Freddie Gay. Remember, Vanessa, how he was yeah, in the back of that paddy wagon? So that's yeah. what was happening. Yeah. And often they would put our people or all people, for a matter of fact, in all of America and really around the world, they would put them in the back of a police car. The police officers would get in the front of the car and then you would just kind of roll around back there. And sometimes they would put a pillow under your neck, which, by the way, restricts airflow. Not good. And so somebody made this groundbreaking paper that told as much that tens of thousands of people lives could be saved. And one of the things that made all of this clear was that combat medicine in Vietnam had really advanced, right? You know how Jerry's a police officer. One time he told me about a motorcycle crash and how they just put the guy in the, the guy's like bleeding out. He didn't make it, but they just put him in the back of the police car to take him to the hospital. And I was like, where are the ambulances? Because here in this developing country, it's almost like 1960 Pittsburgh. We think Um, that this has been forever, forever that there have been ambulances, but in fact, this community right here was the dawn of modern emergency medical care. Vanessa, some of those brothers that came back and they were Vietnam veterans and they understood that in the battlefield, the time between when you are shot and when you get to yeah. the medic tent was yeah. crucial. And so combat medical care had evolved because it was funded, because the best doctors and nurses were out there in Vietnam trying to win the war, but it had not come back to America. So part of this paper was in that context. 
The other thing that, that um, was known at the time is that if you got shot in Vietnam, you had a better chance of living than if you got shot in South Central LA or in Pittsburgh because of wow. this kind of crisis medical team that would help you. So there was a man who was just pounding his fist on the table. His name is Dr. Sahar. And mm-hmm. it's either Sahar or Safar. I'm dyslexic, y'all. Let me look at my nose. Hold <laughs> what is this? Safar, 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 like Safari. Okay. Dr. Safar had a particular and personal interest in this problem, Vanessa. Not only was he a physician himself who had worked in all the different rotations, including the emergency room, but he was a top-notch physician. And when his daughter was young, Vanessa, she suffered an asthma attack and she didn't make it. And so he always had this kind of personal call around emergency care. And then later in his career, the mayor and later governor of Pittsburgh of Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania suffered a massive heart attack and it was very public and he was rushed to the hospital, but he didn't get the care he needed on the hospital. And it was Dr. Safar who treated him and he lost his patient who was very, very public patient. So this man who himself was a genius, by the way, Vanessa, uh, he's a white man. He's, he's a genius. Some people said the guys that I'm going to talk about in a second said that they sometimes saw him writing different things with both hands, like that level of genius. Uh Um, he started experimenting medically. You know, this woman told me from the Agape Church that if you are feeling like a block with writing or like a spiritual block, that you should write to yourself in your other hand. It like does something with your brain, like connects it to you. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he was writing to himself and others at the same time. And this man was a genius. And so he started this experimental thing called CPR, Vanessa. And it was radical at the time. And Dr. Safar is known as the father of CPR. Nobody liked CPR. The people didn't like CPR. They like, mm, don't put your mouth on me. Don't, put your, don't press my chest. Right. And the medical right. establishment did not like lay people practicing medical procedures. They did not believe that citizens should even be taught how to practice medical procedures. They thought that everyday people like me and you would be more dangerous with these skills than helpful. Mm-hmm. So nobody supported so far, but he was determined, Vanessa. So he started doing all these kind of like wacky experiments. I put a link to a podcast about this. It's so good, good reporting where he would go and he went to like somewhere like the Amazon forest and got this like poison or whatever and uh-huh. put, gave it to people. So their hearts would stop beating. And then he would have, everyday citizens resuscitate them. And the interview I heard said that he would even have Boy Scouts, like children, resuscitate them using CPR, almost like not a circus act, but like, ah, <laughs> like, oh, right. we, we can bring people back to life. Now, as the journalist said, medical research has gone a long way since 1967, because <laughs> we cannot do that no more. But he was determined to get CPR into the mainstream. Okay, that's the second tentacle of this triad that's about to happen. So the first one is Freedom House that we know is delivering stuff. The second one is the father of CPR. And the third one is a funder, a funder that was interested in medical intervention, particularly saving lives after that report came out. So you have one dedicated funder who had a background in medicine, one scientist who had read all the research and is developing an intervention and people power, the community who already had the trust and the commitment of the entire community and who needed jobs so had an incentive to work hard. 
Yeah. Vanessa, I heard a story about a man who was in like a plant, right? Like an industrial Uh plant. He was working in like a factory and he said somebody got hurt really bad in the factory and everybody was like, oh my God, you know, that's deadly, right? So both of our families come from working in factories and we know life insurance Mm -hmm. is high because of that, right? Somebody got hurt in the factory. He said he turned around and he saw the most beautiful thing he had ever seen in his life, Vanessa. He said in came these strong, muscled, sinewy, tall, cool-looking black dudes dressed all in white. He said their afros were picked out perfect. He said they rushed in. They started doing medical intervention with this man. They, start, they rolled him over. They talked his language. They, they got the crowds under control. He said he had never seen something so dignified and beautiful in his life. And he knew in an instant that that's what he wanted to be. This is a grown man who's seen them, right? right? So what happened, Vanessa, is that the Freedom House Emergency Response or Ambulance System was born. These men, there were 26 of them at first. They were known as like the unemployables, Vanessa. They had been chronically unemployed. These are people that you know, Vanessa. This your uncle, right. this my yeah. cousin. Just a man who may or may not be a pimp. Just a man who probably is selling weed. Like these are the people we know who are the unemployable. These are men who have PTSD from the war. These are young brothers who are the coolest, but who can't hold no job because they ain't going to work for the man. 26 young, unemployable, in quotes, black men were selected by this trailblazing Freedom House enterprise And that social group identified the talent in the community. They brought these 26 brothers on. They partnered with an ally who was Safar, this doctor. And this doctor did something amazing, Vanessa. He leveraged his position, his proximity, his wealth, his power to vouch for these men and to insist on world-class training. So they did rotations in the hospital, Vanessa. Vanessa, he got them their GEDs because literacy was an issue. He knew this was his moment, okay? He got yeah. their GEDs. He put them in, in treatment for drug addiction if they needed it. But then he started training them on everything from intubation to IVs to cardiovascular response to treating chemically drug overdoses. I mean, he started treating them like med students, Vanessa. They had their clipboards. They were in the hospital, in the ER. They said they was in the OBGYN learning how to deliver babies. He even taught them defensive driving. He took them and taught them defensive driving so they could drive the ambulance. This Freedom House in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was the first ever, first ever, black, white, American or worldwide, first ever in history, world-class, high-tech, emergency street response, which we now call paramedicine. Paramedicine did not exist before these 26 black men. Paramedicine did not exist as a concept before these 26 black men, Vanessa. Wow. And they were excellent. 
they were excellent. They were so excellent, Vanessa, that people started trying to call the, just the Freedom House. They was like, we need the Freedom House ambulance. They, when they call ambulance, they don't want just nobody to come. A fine but man just called, walked, first of all, just ran by me. And I feel like it's <laughs> like, that's probably how these men look. He has the thighs. He was running. And I was just like, oh paramedicine, all of it, all of it, all of it. Yes. <laughs> there were no paramedics before Freedom House. I just want your kids to know that when you dialed 911, you were thrown in the back of a paddy wagon and transported. You were not in good hands. There was nobody there who knew to clear your airway. There was nobody there who could give you resuscitation or breath. There was nobody there who knew how to stabilize your spine. There was nobody there who had the strength and physical fitness to be able to lift you on a straight board so that you didn't get injured. They tell stories that they would listen to the police intercom, the walkie-talkies, for emergencies, and they would race down the street to beat the police there. Because they said if the white police officers got there first, it was going to be a challenge of authority. And if the white police officers got there first and it was a car crash, they were just going to pull the people out of the car crash because they don't have any medical training. And they're going to injure the spine, the neck, all sorts of things. So these 26 black men would race the police officers through town to try and perform this kind of hero marvel. Like, like I'm telling you, this is medical miracles that's happening out here, okay? Yeah. Moreover, Vanessa, they had the trust of the community. So when other people wouldn't call for medical assistance, they would call these men. And then they also knew the language, right? So they tell this beautiful story in part of another documentary that I shared today. They tell this beautiful story of when Dr. King was killed, they were still in training and they had gone to Baltimore because Baltimore has some of the top notch medical establishments in the world to train. Okay. And in Baltimore was when the world found, when they were in Baltimore is when the world found out that Dr. King was killed. Well, everybody knows that riots broke out in every city. And in Baltimore, it was particularly heated, the riots after Dr. King. And these men were in the midst of it and they were toward the end of their training and they were expected to show up. Well, they tell the story that the rioters were pulling police officers out of their cars. And the only people who could get through with these were these brothers who, who from the way, who from around the way, who understand how to speak, who understand how to walk, who understand how to navigate. And they went through right. these crowds with the nod and the fist bump of their community rescuing people when the racist cops could not get in to rescue lives. Vanessa, they said sometimes they only had the black and white police cars. They would have to turn on the inside lights and be like, look, it's us. It's us, y'all. It's us. Do not shoot at this car. It is us. <laughs> Vanessa, I oh, could not man. believe we did not know this story. I could I not can't believe, believe that there were not even paramedics before the 1960s. I could not Without believe a- that people could not deliver babies. So many firsts happen with Freedom House. Everything from in the field intubation to in the field IVs to, I mean, like yeah. actual emergency room care in the streets and in people's homes. And as you can imagine, like, imagine if they went to Peggy's house, right? And something happened, God forbid. And this was like 1967, right? Well, only thing we know is get the person to the hospital. So you then see these black dudes coming in and Peggy, who's down with the people, would be like, what are they doing? Why are they taking so long? They are saving the life of whoever's in the house. But Peggy is like, could you get them to the hospital? 
So part of their issue wasn't even with white folks. It was sometimes with our own people because they didn't understand emergency care because it didn't happen before then. So they're like, stop pressing on her chest, put her in the van and take her to the hospital. And they're like, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. So they even had to be social workers to some degree to calm people down, to explain to people everything from even why the word ambulance is written backwards on the ambulance. So you can see it in your rear view. So you can get out of the way. I mean, none of this existed before them. Yes. None of this existed before them. So they had so many medical firsts. And what happened is then a woman named Nancy came in, a white woman who was hired by Salk to come in and be their manager. And she started codifying and writing the books on street medicine. You know, you know how uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. I do, you I know, do. we should have wrote the book on street medicine, but she wrote the book on street medicine. That book from their manager became the curriculum for all paramedics across the country. And in fact, this is the reason why we don't know about these people. These 26 men actually became actual heroes, Vanessa. Not only are they going into riots to save people, but then they start delivering babies. They answered 6,000 calls in their first year. They saved hundreds of lives that are documented. That they So they became actual heroes, not just in Pittsburgh, but all over the world. Because remember, the medical establishment was rocked by this paper that 50,000 people were dying. So everybody wanted to learn. All the different cities was like, bring the Freedom House people here. Teach us what they, how did they train? What did they do? What do their uniforms look like? How are their ambulances equipped? You know, we done pimped out the whole ambulance. Because we were like, well, they need some air conditioning. Like we did the whole thing right. And there were so many firsts, like, they had the first, oh, there's ambulance passes. Oh, I never heard ambulance on your side. I me either. Y'all don't even understand. This is just God's work. They were the first to have, uh, what do you call it, an incubator. An incubator in the ambulance. Yeah, they rigged the ambulance so there was an incubator. And then they started doing hospital-to-hospital transfers. Like if there is at the children's hospital, if they had a a medical team that could assist a baby that was in trauma, they would take it from like maybe one of the inner city hospitals to the children's hospital with the incubator because babies were just dying. Like 90%, I I read a statistic that 90% of babies were dying and they got that number, in Pittsburgh, got that number down to 50%. So they saved 40% of the babies that they carried by rigging the ambulance with an incubator. And then they would have a nurse and doctor with them. This was emergency medical care. And it started with these men. I cannot say it enough. It makes me so excited. So then what started happening is they started putting them in helicopters. And when people were hanging off a cliff or like all these kinds of like actual, like in the field emergencies, like in Utah or Uh whatever, they would fly these men, one of these 26 black men out there. So they became national heroes, Vanessa. They now wrote the book. They now wrote the protocols. They, they developed the training. It was the perfect storm of just and righteous funders meeting with really powerful research and technical medical know-how with community leadership and trust and co-signing and proximate leaders all coming together to save lives in a place that was blighted from medical care, okay? So the death rate went down in Hill District. And everybody thought this is the future. Well, Vanessa, there was a change in administration. And this had been funded not just by that one funder I told you about, but by federal funding, some of the social funding that came through. I don't remember the act, but some of the social funding that came through. So there is a political change. And the mayor who came in was mad racist. This is 1970-something. He's mad racist. I mean, mad racist. And one of the things that was started to happen is contracts. So 
emergency transport was a contract that each of the different like neighborhoods or municipalities would contract out the police department to do that, right? So the first argument against Freedom House is why are they only providing this world-class care to this inner city ghetto neighborhood, to these black people? Why aren't they providing this care? I mean, people started like, the white neighborhood started saying, why don't we have a Freedom House? So the mayor was like, oh my God. So they could either award these black men and then soon there was women too. They could either award this black company these contracts and jobs or they could not, right? They decided that they were not going to do it and that he didn't like that this was happening in just Hill District for all of his constituents. He wanted excellent care. So then he went to Nancy and said, Nancy, I am not funding Freedom House anymore. We are striking this from the budget and I am developing a city level paramedic program that takes Mm -hmm. the best practices from Freedom House and I want you to lead it. Well, she said to her credit, I will lead your program if you promise to employ all of our paramedics, all of our black men. It was mostly black men and women, right? Yeah. He said, fine, Vanessa, Vanessa. He hired Nancy. She done wrote the curriculum for the city. They done structured the program. They got all the funding in place. And you know what? He hired them then for Freedom House. And he abruptly (laughs) fired them immediately. And the new paramedics for the city of Pittsburgh was 98% white men. Of course. 98% white men. And it never went back to training and bringing in jobs from the black community that it was designed to have a triple bottom line of saving lives, of creating a pilot and employing people who needed the employment the most, training and employing people. So he took the idea and then from there, every city adopted paramedic care but paramedicine started in 1967 in Hills District, Pennsylvania. Oh, I love this story so much. Yo, listen, I was taking notes. This, this is a movie. This is a movie. No, it's a movie. It is such a movie. It is such or a movie. Or at least a series. Yeah, no, I would love to, like, learn about the, the men, the characters, the people, like... Black men, especially oh in this They're country, woo, like they have just been up against so much and so many different odds. And it's so hard to find a place where they can define themselves and their manhood. And so these type of like critical communities that come in for black men and meet them where they are and still like honor their humanity and still realize that they have so much to give like that. We need so much more of that in our neighborhood. Vanessa, yes. And so many of their firsthand accounts, because many of them are still alive, it was in the, the second documentary that I showed. And they told so many funny stories about like making sure their uniform was clean and ironed. I mean, you know, black men bring a certain flavor. but that's all I'm saying. Look, flight. my grandfather was a janitor and he literally wore press slacks at the University of Washington for like 20 years. He wore press slacks and a press t-shirt and button-up shirt and cologne and like he looked like he was going to the club every day but he was just going to clean the floor (laughs) yeah yeah it was such a victory because they didn't sugarcoat where these brothers were coming from and they were coming from a hard place you understand what I mean they really were coming from a hard place but this gave them such a sense of purpose and dignity they said they worked so hard one of the guys said we weren't just working to save lives. He said we were an ongoing commercial of what black men could be. 
that if we just had training, we just had an opportunity, we just had like work, that this is what we could be. And so we became that in our community, like these kinds of role models. Like, you know, he used to be a dope dealer and look at him. He's saving lives now. And there's something just so powerful about that to me. Like, give people a chance. Understand that the context of their lives is what gives you the choices, but give them another choice or give us another choice. You understand what I mean? So I loved that so much. I do. I think we're right at time. So, Vanessa, (laughs) you have any final thoughts or any words or an encouragement for the people? No. Well, actually, my final, yes, my final thought is I don't know what our community is in Pittsburgh. Like, I don't actually know. And I do hope that we can actually get somebody who's organizing there, Girl Trek women who are walking there, crews who are established there. Like, I'm just wondering, what is our Girl Trek community there in that neighborhood in Pittsburgh? Yes. If you are in Pittsburgh and you need help organizing, you can contact, I think it's Mid-Atlantic. You can either contact midatlantic at girltrek.org or northeast at girltrek.org. Both of those emails work and somebody will get back to you. Either Katora or Siobhan will get back to you, our regional coaches there. Or you can go on our website and download a field guide. Or more importantly, you can get to a blue shirt and start walking by yourself. Uh, start walking. See you. Yes, you don't got to ask permission to save your own life. You don't got to ask permission. If you are out there in Pittsburgh, while we're closing up, if you want to raise your hand, star nine, and you want to say, I am here, I am here, I am here in Pittsburgh, we would love to hear your voice today. We have just a minute or two. We can wait. Vanessa and I got plenty to talk about. We can wait (laughs) if there's somebody there. If there's not, we will get somebody there for sure. Hopefully today's story. Tag somebody from Pittsburgh. Tag somebody who used to live in Pittsburgh. Let's get Girl Trek as a life-saving movement there. You know what I mean? Listen, we have big dreams of knocking on people's doors. We have big dreams of job creation. We have big dreams of being the continuation of Freedom House in 2022. We have women in the streets everywhere. And we said it on the TED stage, and I'll say it here, that wherever there was violence, if there were black women walking in the streets wearing these bright blue shirts like the superheroes that you are, that those emergencies would not be as dramatic. And particularly, the police would not be killing our kids in the streets. And so one of the things we want to do is make our presence known in all of our communities. So I am super excited about the future. I can't wait to tell you all about the new mission of Girl Trek and where we're going in the next 10 years. We are forming together our words. We're trying to get our words right. We've been learning and studying these lessons and Black history as a blueprint for where we are going. Y'all, we will need all hands on deck, all feet on the front line um, in order to make sure that we can increase the life expectancy of Black women by 10 years in 10 years. We know we can do it. We know we can do it. And we have just been given an example by these 26 men in Pittsburgh. So I'm so grateful to tell this story today. All right. Are there any callers on the line? If not, we will wrap up. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. What's your name? My name is Pam, and I am originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I did not know about this story, and I am so glad to hear it, and thank you all for sharing this. I'm from a small town outside of Pittsburgh called McKeesport, Pennsylvania, and I went to Pitt, the University of Pitt, and have just been a big fan of August Wilson and uh, follow everything about August Wilson and all of this. But this right here, I'm proud to say I just turned 60 this year. 
So I was growing up when all of this was happening. So had no idea about how paramedics got started. And I am so godly proud of my city and my black people in Pittsburgh and for you guys sharing this story. Oh, thank you for calling in and sharing that. Thank you. And help us continue the legacy there in Pittsburgh because guaranteed, like we talked about Chicago and how segregation is as bad as it was in the 60s when Fred Hampton was there. We also know that poverty persists. Poverty persists in our communities and poverty is deadly. And we are a health movement trying to live. And so one of the things that we want to try and do is get more women on the street so that we can collectively organize. So if you have Cousins, old neighbors, old friends, just tag them in this episode and let them know that Girl Trek is for them. We welcome all. Come, come, come. We are trying to liberate ourselves as a black community and heal our bodies and inspire our daughters. So everybody is welcome. We would love to have some people walking in Girl Trek shirts in Pittsburgh sooner rather than later. So sister, we'll, we'll rely on you. You know you got a network. Start tagging yes. the people, your cousin in there. I will. I will. And I was just home this past weekend. I'm a big Steeler fan. And we went through the game and just seeing the city. I say it always, it looks like it's got a lot going on. It's a beautiful looking place. But like you said, there's a lot of work to be done. And I do have good connections and I'm going to reach out to my people. So thank you guys. Yes, big sis. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much. That is wonderful. So, Vanessa, I wanted to... We have to, a few um, other callers, Morgan, if you want. I don't oh, know if we have... Oh, wonderful. Yeah, yes. yeah. Why not? Vanessa come on, Moore. come on. Let's get it. Come on. Hello? Yes, sister. Hello? What's your name and where are you okay. from? Yes. My name is Natalie, and I'm in Blacksburg, Virginia. And I was going to move to Pittsburgh, and there is a Girl Trek presence in Pittsburgh. They have a Facebook group. And I wow. joined the group when I, when I was, was going to move there, but... Things happened, and I'm able to go. I'm going to law school in Massachusetts now. So yay me! Uh, Come on, lawyer. But, Come on, lawyer. We need lawyers and doctors <laughs> in the movement. Yes, yes. But I'm I so want to say my that information. Well, my my uh, my uncle who earned a uh, Purple Heart was an actual combat medic in Vietnam. Wow. And I, when you said that, when you told when you told that story, I was like, wow. My dad and four of his brothers all went, but my uncle was a combat medic. And I am a second-generation veteran, and I, too, am a combat medic. So that story oh. just, it, it really fills my heart, and I'm very grateful for Black History Boot Camp saving my life and all the lives of the people that I touch. Ooh, that's so good. Put that on the commercial, y'all. That's so good. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm so grateful for the work you have done, generations of your family have done. And thank you for telling us that we have a Girl Trek page in Pittsburgh. If people are there, go connect with those sisters. Go tell them to get re-energized out there. We would love to see you on social media. Use hashtag Black History Bootcamp or hashtag Girl Trek, and we will see you. Thank you so much, sister. So I thought, Vanessa, what do we end with? Okay, first of all, in my story, I had that Aretha Franklin song. I don't remember what it is. I don't remember what it was. I was like, we could play that. But then I was like, Mm -hmm. no, we got to go out with some black manhood. We're cool black men where we paint a picture of the men navigating through social ills. And I was like, the person who talks most about social ills is Nas. But then I was like, what song did he play that sound like the 60s? And I thought about James. See, I'll be going deep for y'all. That playlist, I'll be going deep. 
So then I thought about James Brown, the boss. And then I was like, but Nas got a song called Get Down that used the beat of the boss. And I was like, this is the perfect song to end with. So let's end paying tribute to them brothers that wore them uniforms, that smelled good, that came up there knowing that CPR, knew how to put in an IV, knew how to straighten up your back, knew how to carry your mama and deliver your baby. Yes. Yes. Let's go out with Nas Get Down, the perfect storytelling for a perfect story. Talk to you all later. Streets were killers of walk like Pistol Pete and Pappy Mason Gave the young boys admiration Prince from Queens and Fritz from Harlem Street legends, the drugs kept the hood from starving Pushing cars, Nicky Bars was the 70s But there's a long list of high-profile celebrities Worldwide on the thorough side of things Live as kings, some died, one guy, one time, one day grasped me As I'm about to blast heat, 40 side of burning I turn while he asked me What you up to, the cops gon' bust you I was a teen drunk or brew Stumbled, I wondered if God sent him Cause two squad cars entered the block And looked at us, I ain't flinched when they watched I took it upstairs, the bathroom mirror Brushed my hair, staring at a young disciple I almost gave my life to what the dice do yeah man throwing them bones hoping my ace get his case thrown his girl ain't wait for him she in the world straight hoeing why he looking at cinephones a pretty girl showing a little cooch gangsters don't die he's living proof the da who tried him was lying the white dude killed his mother during the case hung jury now the da is being replaced pre-trial hearing is over it's real for the soldier walks in the courtroom the look in his eyes is wild triple homicide i sit in the back aisle i want to crack a smile when i see him Throw up a fist for black power Cause all we want is his freedom He grab a court officer's gun and start a squeezing Then he grab the judge, screams out nobody leaving Everybody Get down, get down